chapter 3. And then we're going to flip over to John chapter 1. Matthew chapter 3 and then John chapter 1. We're going to read in those two places here this morning. And we're continuing this morning uh, this, this look into the life of John the Baptist. We began talking about John last week and, and where we, uh, last week we, we dove into the purpose of this man's ministry. We dove into the purpose of, of John's ministry, which was to prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, this morning we're going to look uh, really at, at what I could, I would call and refer to as the mountaintop moment of his ministry. This was, uh, this was really the pinnacle of of the, the time of his ministry, and that's the baptism of Jesus, and really the the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus through, uh, and John played a role in that. And I, I would say that that if John's prophetic ministry, if that was one of preparation for the Messiah, then the moment that Jesus stepped into his calling, that that really was the signal of release for John. Uh, he didn't necessarily stop his ministry. He didn't, he didn't completely fade into the background, but uh, he, he did for the most part because his ministry was then fulfilled. His, uh, what he had been sent by God to do, which was to prepare, to prepare the way for the Lord, that had been fulfilled at this moment because Jesus, his ministry was beginning. And so let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 13. Just read a couple of verses here, and then we'll flip over to John chapter 1. It says, that, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, and he's saying, I have, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said to him, Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. So John suffered him. In other words, John not wanting to baptize Jesus because he didn't feel he was worthy to do so. Jesus says this has to happen. We have to, in order to fulfill all righteousness, uh, we, uh, you must baptize me. And so he does so. In verse 16, and Jesus, when he was baptized... He went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, let's, let's flip over to John chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 19, and I will note that the book of John is the only one of the four Gospels that does not give a direct account of the baptism of Jesus, but this conversation that we'll come into here uh, in, in verse 19, it appears to take place some short time after John had, had just baptized Jesus. And so let's pick up here in verse 19 of John chapter 1. This is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? 
And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elias? That is uh, Elijah. Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Well, art thou that prophet? He answered, no. And they then said they unto him, well, who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah. He's quoting something that Isaiah said of himself. He was a prophet crying in the wilderness, or a voice crying in the wilderness. Verse 24. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees, and they asked him and said unto him, Well, why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethbara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John sees Jesus coming to him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is, bef- which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, it abode upon him, and I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said to me, Upon whom thou shalt see that spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, and I bear record that this is the Son of God. Yeah, we have a lot to unpack from these two passages here this morning, and Whereas last week, if you were here, I, uh, someone, I, I preached a little bit in our morning Bible class, and, and we had a very powerful time of, of prayer up at the altars, and, and today it's probably going to be a little bit slower pace, and I know I don't have a handout for you this morning, but uh, we're going to just kind of work through some of these, or work through these two passages here, because I feel that there are within these some very common misunderstandings about uh, about the, this passage of Scripture, these passages of Scripture. Our, our title here this morning is, Heaven Was Opened. And I'm just going to start out, uh, let's, let's start out with that second passage, the, the second passage that we read, the one that was there in John chapter 1. The writer, the writer here in, in this, this passage he notes that the Jews, they sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. They, they were going, they're trying to investigate this disturbance that's happening out at the Jordan River. This, this man who, uh, this, who's been baptizing people, has been preaching this crazy message. He looks like a lunatic. He's got a crazy, this, this man that says that he was clothed in camel's hair. He, his hair was all wild and, and um, he ate locusts and just a 
not a, a normal guy from society. And, and so apparently word had gotten back to Jerusalem. And uh, the priests, the, the leaders of the, the temple in Jerusalem, they sent some people to go and investigate who this man is. You see, this certainly was not the first time that uh, there was an individual who had gained an audience and uh, was outside of the, uh, the, the normal uh, leader, Jewish leaders of the day. This isn't the first time that something like this had happened. This was, uh, may not say a common occurrence, but it was a, a recurring thing that, that would take place during that time period. And, and, um, they, uh, had, had recently or somewhat recently seen a man named Judas Maccabee. And, uh, Judas Maccabee, he was thought by many, uh, many Jews of that day to be the Messiah. He was uh, viewed by many as, as being the one that was going to uh, set them free from the oppressive Hasmonean dynasty and the, the Roman rule of that day. And there were other prophets who they had come and gone. Many of them, they, they claimed to be the Messiah, the one that, uh, the one that they were all searching for. So when the temple priests and the, and the rulers, when they heard about this man who was out there and preaching these fiery sermons about repentance, about uh, and baptizing people in the, the muddy Jordan River, they they wanted to know who is this guy? Who who does who does he claim to be? You know, we we hear the the noise, we hear what others are saying about this guy and who they think he is. But let's go to the source and let's let's hear what he has to say about who he feels he is in, uh, in this, in this uh, whole, uh, whole role of, of what God has sent him to do. And so they come to him and they, they ask him this question. They, they say, are, uh, who, who are you? And I believe the response that they were expecting to receive was, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's who's coming to to set you free. I, I believe that that is the response that that they were expecting to receive from this guy because this was this is what had happened recently many times uh, in, in their history, and so uh, there were, there were those who had proclaimed to be the Messiah, but but John emphatically he, he he without hesitating he comes to them and he says, "I am not the Messiah." And so then they follow up. Well, if you're not the Messiah, are you Elijah? Well, that may seem like a, an odd thing to ask. I mean, Elijah uh, was this, this prophet who had uh, lived hundreds of years before. Um, he had been on earth. He was a man sent from God, a very powerful ministry, many miraculous things that happened in his life. But one of the things that was very unique about Elijah was the fact that Elijah never died. Elijah was one of the very few men, uh, very few people that, that we see that uh, they never saw death. We see Enoch uh, in Scripture that Enoch was the first of these men that uh, says that he just simply walked with God. He was not. He, he disappeared and God took him. Uh, because of his relationship that he had with God. But Elijah, similarly, 
was a man that uh, he, he had this relationship with God that uh, at, at the, towards the end of his life, it says that God took him up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And so because of that, because of that, uh, they, and I should say, and, and kind of coupled with, I'll, I'll read this, this one prophecy from Malachi. To Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the fact that Elijah had uh, did not die and we have this prophecy from Malachi that God is saying, I'm going to send Elijah to you, the prophet, before that day of the Lord, before uh, that, the coming of, of the Messiah. Uh, they had, had developed this doctrine, or this idea, this teaching, that the physical Elijah was actually going to come back to earth. This was a very common teaching during that day. The priests of that day taught that Elijah himself would come out of heaven come back to earth, and that he would usher in this, uh, this this time period that the Messiah could then enter and set them free from their oppression. That was the teaching of the day. And so they were looking all over for Elijah. They were expecting Elijah. And so this is, this is the question they asked. Well, are you Elijah? Are you the man come back to earth and making making the way of the Lord, making turning the hearts of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children their fathers. Are you doing that? Are you the one? And to that question, John kind of curiously says, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not Elijah. So then they go to a third individual. This is the, the third person that during that day, during that time period, they, uh, these, these Jews of that day, we're looking for either the Messiah or Elijah or this third individual, which was that prophet. Didn't go by a name. He was simply referred to as that prophet or the, the prophet. And this comes from, this comes from a, uh, a writing, a, a prophecy that can, comes from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses writes here, uh, this, this word from God, it says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. So, the Jewish teaching of that day, it typically viewed this as the third individual who would show up around the same time as the Messiah. Now, I'll just mention that all evidence points to the fact that Jesus fulfilled both this prophecy from Moses and every other prophecy about the Messiah. That that prophet, the one that they viewed as being a separate person, in fact was the Messiah. It was Jesus. It was the man who had come from the midst of them and that would set them free. And so, uh, and so Jesus was the one who had fulfilled this. But for them, they were viewing and looking for the prophets Elijah or the Messiah. And so they come to John and they ask him this question, who are you? Are you one of these? And John says, no. 
And I find that a bit curious because even from the very beginning, uh, before John was even uh, conceived, when the angel came, we, we, we read the scripture last week, but when the angel came to Zacharias, the father of John, the angel said to him, the spirit of Elijah will be upon this one. The spirit of Elijah will rest upon your child. He's going to be the one that will prepare the way of the Lord. That was his mission. That was. He did. So though John answers this question, he says, no, I am not that man. I am not Elijah. Uh, the reason, uh, so even though he says that, he was the one that was prophesied of by Malachi. He was the fulfillment. And we don't, that's not just me putting conjecture out there to say, I believe he is. Jesus points to him as being Elijah. Scriptures point to him as being the one that was the fulfillment of that scripture. But, but John himself, John himself didn't view him, didn't view himself in the light of saying, I'm seeking all the titles that you can give me. He wasn't a title seeker. He wasn't somebody that was saying, give me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you all how important I am. He simply was a man that says, I have a message from God and all I'm, all I'm, all I care about is just giving you the message that I have from God, which is get yourselves right, repent of your ways, go, you need to be baptized and, and begin to turn some things around because I'm trying to get you to be ready for the coming of the Lord because the coming of the Lord is very soon. He had a message from God. And so when these men come from Jerusalem, and they're, they're coming to, to John, they have this big political agenda behind their questions. They have all these political agendas of, of if we can't identify him, then we can begin to heap all these expectations upon him that he is going to be, uh, to set us free from our oppression. And John says, I'm not, I'm not concerned about your political agendas. I don't care about that. All that I care about is what God is trying to do through me. All I care about is that in the spiritual realm, that I am obeying the voice of God and being his voice to this people in this day and age. And so he he, he bypasses all of their real questions about who are you. And he simply says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make, Make your path straight. Begin to get some things right. Here's the reason I dive into this this morning is because there are men and and women today who are self-proclaimed prophets. And maybe not everybody in here is is familiar with this, but but some of you know what I'm talking about. There There are so many people out there today who are seeking a title. And whether that title is prophet, whether it's teacher, whether it's apostle and all these all these different titles that. That we may see people put in front of their name. And, and if God, here's what I'll say, if God didn't call you to it, then you had better not embrace some title. And I see this a lot with men who they, they claim to be prophets. And, and they'll tell you that, that you need a prophet in your life. 
On you, you, you need to have a prophet in your life. It, it's good. It's good to have a pastor in your life, but, but you need a prophet. And they are more than willing to step into that role and to tell you what God is supposedly saying to them and trying to guide you into certain things. And now, I absolutely believe in prophets today. I believe that they are necessary for the operation of the apostolic church in these days, just as they were necessary for the first century church. They were part of the fivefold ministry that's given to the church for the work of ministry. But I don't believe in self-proclaimed prophets. And I sure get leery when someone starts lifting themselves up and putting prophet in front of their name all over Facebook and on social media are trying to tell you, hey, you need a prophet in your life. Let me be the voice that's going to guide you. I have a voice that's going to guide me. It's called the Holy Spirit. I have that. I have somebody that I can go to for counsel. That's why I have a pastor that, that I can come to. I, and, and not just pastor, but I have the church that I can go to and I can talk talk to people. And But but I, I, I don't need necessarily some personal prophet that's going to drop things in my life and cause confusion. See, a true prophet doesn't seek the title. That's why in Proverbs 18, 16, it says a man's gift makes room for him. It brings him before great men. It's not about seeking after all these titles. If God is truly placed somebody to be in that position of a prophet, then it'll make room for itself. You don't have to go seeking all these titles in order to do it. Amen. Let's let's get back to that the passage here. See, when John, when he simply repeats the words of Isaiah, he claims to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's he's then asked about why he's out there, why he's baptizing. They say, if you aren't the Messiah, if you aren't Elijah, if you aren't the prophet, then why are you baptizing people? And to be honest, we we actually don't know why they frame the question that way. There's no prophecy, as far as I can tell, that says that the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet would come and baptize people. There's, there's nothing that says that. But, but apparently there was something in their mind that was saying, um, at least if you were one of these men, then you have authority to go and to do this. And so they're asking him, by what authority are you coming and doing these things? By, by whose authority is this? And, and, here's, and here's what John does. Is he says, you're looking at me and you're seeing all these things that I'm doing. But what you're missing is that there's one right here among us that is so much greater than me. There's one right here among us that I'm not even worthy to unlatch his shoes. And what an incredible statement by John when he says, I'm not worthy to unlatch his shoes. Because here's, here was the law of the day for, uh, for a rabbi and disciple relationship. They actually had some laws that were defined, Jewish laws, that, were defi- that defined what a, a teacher or a rabbi could request of his disciples. Because it was, in some ways... A master-servant relationship. It was certainly a, a teacher-student relationship, but there was also a master-servant relationship that was that was there. And one of the things uh, that was very, that was written out was that a rabbi or a teacher, the master, could not 
could not ask his disciples to take his shoes off. He could go. He could ask them to run errands for him. He could ask them uh, to, to go and get uh, the tent ready. He could ask them to go do all these things that a, a servant might do. But uh, we draw the line at the fact that he can't ask them to take his shoes off. That was kind of the, the, the line in the sand. Uh, there's, there's more menial, menial tasks under that probably. But as far as the line that we draw, that's where we draw. And John says, I'm not worthy to do that. When I look at Jesus, when I look at this man, I'm not worthy even to do that. But yet when Jesus came to him, he says, I need you to baptize me because it's going to fulfill all righteousness. And so John begins, he's trying to point the people who come asking questions. He's trying to point them to the fact that there's one so much greater than him that is among them. And they need to be ready for the ministry of Jesus Christ. So that next day, it says that John, he sees Jesus, he greets him and he says, behold, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. (laughs) John, he says, Jesus will be preferred before me. In other words, he's going to be greater than me in the work that he accomplishes. Why? He says, because he was before me. Now that doesn't make logical sense. Because Jesus, he was younger than John, so he wasn't born before him. He started his ministry after John started his ministry, so he wasn't before him in that sense. So in what way was Jesus before John? The only way it makes sense is the same way that Jesus said later on, he said, before Abraham was, I am. This is because Jesus was God made flesh. He pre-existed everything because he was God. And so John says, he's preferred before me for he was before me. He existed before me. He existed before he existed here on earth. He was before me. That's why his ministry is going to be so much greater than me. He is the son of God. He is the flesh of God. He says, and I knew him not. No, he doesn't mean he never met him. This was his cousin he's talking about. But he says, I didn't realize that it was him until the day that I baptized him. And when I did that, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove. It abode upon him. There's a spirit that came down from heaven in the form of a dove. It rested on Jesus says, I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water. So John, he's, he's talking about Yahweh here, about God. He says, God is the one. He sent me to baptize people with water. And the same he said to me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw bear record that this is the Son of God. Okay, last, last Sunday, in our second service, if you were here, you heard an absolutely... An absolute treatise by Brother Tim Duffy on the oneness of God. I am so thankful for the message that, that Brother Duffy preached last Sunday. It was, it, it was such an incredible message on the subject of, of the fact that God is one. 
that God that we see through the through, we, we can go from Genesis to Isaiah to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John to Revelation. It doesn't matter where you point to in Scripture. We see that God himself is one, that God is one. That there is now no one beside him, that there is, he doesn't share his glory with some other, that when God says, I'm gonna come and I will save you from your sins, and then it's Jesus that comes and saves you from their sins, that is Jesus who is God. And so, uh, we, we, what an incredible message, and I believe that it is, it is important to know the God who we serve, and I'm not saying necessarily that you'll fully, ever fully understand God. I don't know that we, we can ever fully understand God. In fact, I know we can never fully understand God. Um, but Scripture does give us a very clear picture of the one true God. But unfortunately, that the majority of Christians today, they were taught and, and they adhere to the belief that there is one God, but He exists as three distinct persons. They, they refer to, to this doctrine as the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and the doctrine of the Trinity it states that, that God exists as one essence, or God exists as, as one being who is three distinct and separate persons. They say th- th- this doctrine it teaches that God as one, as one being, as one essence, is three distinct persons which are the Father, which are the Son, and which are the Holy Spirit. This doctrine teaches that these three persons, they are co-equal. They're co-eternal. It teaches that God has always existed as three persons, making up one God, that He is three in one. And I bring this to us today, because this occurrence in Scripture, in this, this baptism of Jesus Christ, by John the Baptist, that this right here is often cited by Trinitarians as, as proof that God is made up of three distinct persons. They point, they point to Jesus who's in the Jordan River and they say, here you can see the, here you can see the person of God, which is the Son. They point to the voice that's calling out from heaven and they say, here, you can see the person of God, which is the Father. They point to the Spirit, which is descended from heaven in the form of a dove. It's rested upon Jesus. And they say, here, you can see clearly the third distinct person of this one God, which is the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I do not believe that the Bible leads us to a conclusion of the Trinity. I understand that that comment may shock some people when you hear that because in most Christian churches today, the Trinitarian doctrine is a very fundamental belief. And I'm not saying that just for shock value, but, uh, but, but it also, here's what also may shock you to know is that the church of the apostolic age, that is the church which was started by Peter and the apostles, the one that Jesus instructed his disciples to create and to be, that church did not believe in the Trinity. Neither did the next generation of believers. In fact, the first 
of the early church fathers to be recorded using the word Trinity was a man named Theophilus of Antioch. Of Antioch. He was writing in the late 2nd century, and he defined the Trinity as, as this. He said it was God, His Word, which is the Logos, and His wisdom. Different, much different from how we, uh, how they presently uh, construct the Trinity. Uh, but that's the first time we see the word used. And, and then that, uh, the first modern doctrine of the Trinity, that didn't come into the church until the third century by a leader, a church leader na- uh, from Carthage named Tertullian. And he explicitly defined the Trinity as this. He said it is the Father, it is the Son, and it's the Holy Spirit. And he defended this, his theology in this book that he published against another leader of the church named Praxius. Praxius vehemently disagreed with any division of the personalities of God. He says you cannot divide God into these different persons of the Godhead. In Tertullian, he even notes in his writings, he says, I'm out here on, a, uh, on an island myself. Didn't quite say it like that, but he, 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 said, he said, I'm out here and... And almost, or in the majority of believers of my day, they find big issues with this doctrine that I'm presenting. Okay, this was a very big change in the way that the, the church, or this, at least this man in the church, viewed God. Yet, this new doctrine that was introduced by Tertullian, who was also, he was a prolific writer, he wrote a lot, and that helped in the dissemination of his doctrine. That doctrine became the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church by the year, I believe it was 381, 381 or 384 at a a meeting in Constantinople. So it was at at that moment that this became the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. This is how they understood the Godhead. And it was added to, it was fleshed out, and it was, it was modified by other church fathers throughout the next few centuries. But Tertullian, he was the one who introduced this concept. This was not the concept of God. This was not the understanding of God until hundreds of years after the church began, until hundreds of years after this Bible was completed. This was not the understanding of God. Before that, it was always that God is simply one. He is not subdivided into three persons. He is not up in heaven identified as three persons who have always been uh, been there in heaven. You can't look to, to heaven and see uh, three that are sitting on the throne. There's only one that sits upon the throne. So throughout the next thousand or so years, the Roman Catholic Church was the seat of, of Christianity. There were, there, there were always, we see the accounts of this, um, Somewhat, but, but there were there were always people who didn't adhere to those doctrines, and and but they were they were persecuted. I mean, the, the Catholic Church they they had all the political power and all this, this power that they needed, so they could persecute anybody who stood against them. And it wasn't until Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation on October thirst October thirty first, fifteen seventeen, where he stood up against the Catholic Church and many of the hypocrisies and the false doctrines of the church, and others that came after Luther, and little by little they began to strip away all of this false teaching that had been ingrained in Christianity over the hundreds of years. But this doctrine of the Trinity remained 
this central tenet for most churches. Even, even those of the Protestant Reformation, even all these churches that, that break away from the Catholic Church. And, and this is because most of these church fathers, they went back as far as the third century. That's where they stopped. They, they, they went back to that point to, uh, uh, to reform the church's practices, the church's doctrines. But they didn't go back even further, which would have been to the first century church. Those who walked with Jesus, those who were taught by Jesus, those who began the church under the direction of Jesus. And so that is where we go today. That is, that is where we go for our doctrine here at New Life Apostolic Church. We go to the apostles. We go to scripture. We go, we don't go to the third century councils of Nicaea and, and Constantinople. I don't go to those councils and get my church doctrine and my creeds. I go to this right here and I look to this and say, God, what does the scripture have to say about you? I go to the God breathed, God inspired, God authored scriptures which point to one God, which is a spirit, and that one God reveals himself in many different ways throughout time. That's very different than the doctrine of the Trinity. There is not and has never been three which sit upon the throne in heaven. There is one. There is one. Now, if you say that to a Trinitarian, this may surprise you. They may agree with that statement. They may say, you're exactly right. There is only one God up in heaven. They don't deny that. But they will point to Jesus standing in the Jordan River and say, that's the son. Undeniably, they'll say he is separate in identity from the father who is in heaven speaking out and saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then that spirit descending down from heaven, they will say is distinctly different and separate from the other two. So how do you reconcile this moment right here that we see in the ministry of John the Baptist? How do you reconcile this with the God that we see throughout Scripture? A God who is one. A God who is not split up into three personalities. How do you reconcile that? Because Scripture doesn't teach us of a co-eternal son. It doesn't teach us of a person of God that has, uh, the person of, of the son uh, that, that existed prior to, its, to his birth in Bethlehem. There is, we don't see in, in Scripture anything about God the son. That, that phrase is not, used at all. We see the Son of God. And I believe the Son of God. I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Scripture is clear that Jesus was the Son of God. So how do you, but how do you reconcile this moment where you have these three? Well, <coughs> the fact is that Jesus was God, but also a man. Jesus, he was fully God. He was not just part of God, which was the Son, but He was also what could be referred to as the Father. That's why when Jesus and Brother Duffy talked about this last week, that's why when, 
when uh, they said, we want, when his disciples said, we want to see the Father. Jesus said, are you blind? You've been with the Father all this time. When you see me, you've seen the Father. I am the flesh of the Father. I am the Son of God. I, when, when, when we see the Son of God, that, the word Son is talking about the flesh of God. He says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. You've seen everything that you can see about God. You've seen Him. There is, I, I'm not just some separate part of God or some separate God that's come down to earth. I am God robed in flesh. So when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, Jesus Christ, He was both God and man. When Scripture refers to Him as the Son of God, I guess I just said this, He was, this is synonymous with saying, This is the flesh of God. Jesus was the flesh of God. So, Wow, we're already over in time. We better wrap this up here this morning. What was going on? What was going on here at the baptism of Jesus? Let me just, just get down to it. What's going on? They were each manifestation of one God. Each of these things are the manifestation of one God. To suggest that God came down to earth and he placed himself inside of a human body does not mean that God did not also abide in heaven. As a spirit, God did not remove himself from heaven in order to place himself inside of Jesus. Likewise, he did not remove himself from heaven in order to place himself inside of a dove. God can reveal himself in multiple ways at the same time. He's not limited to one mode of revelation at a time. In the Old Testament, when God revealed himself as the cloud, that, the cloud by day, the fire by night, that didn't remove God from heaven. When God revealed himself as the burning bush to Moses, that didn't mean that God was no longer in heaven and if somebody's praying to him, he can't answer that prayer because here he is, he's removed himself from heaven and put himself inside of a bush. When God showed up in the middle of a fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He didn't remove himself from heaven and go and put himself inside of that furnace. The same thing is true here. God can manifest himself or God can reveal himself in multiple ways. And that's exactly what's happening here at the baptism of Jesus is that you see Jesus, which is the flesh of God. And God is revealing himself in this manner. But he's also at the same time speaking a confirmation from heaven and saying, this is the one that everybody else ought to know. He is the one that I came in. And I am living inside of him as the flesh or in, in a flesh in, in flesh, and I am going to save my people from their sins. And then also he gave John the sign that he promised he would send to John, which was that like a dove, the spirit would come down and descend upon him. And then John realized that his ministry was then finished, but he had completed it because he prepared the way of the Lord. And so we see that God revealing himself in all these different ways. In all these different ways, all at one time, this is not, this is not a, trini- a trinity of God 
reveal or shows us seeing three separate parts of God, three things here that have always existed. This is the one God revealing himself in different manners, the same way that God also revealed himself in different manners throughout all of Scripture. Man, God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, all at once. Amen. It wasn't until Jesus' baptism that the calling of God truly empowered him to go and to fulfill, begin his ministry, to do what he needed to do. This was a covenant thing. This was a covenant moment when Jesus was baptized. And he's, he's coming onto the scene and he's saying, all right, it's time to begin the work that I've been called to do. Amen. I know we have those that are coming in from our Sunday school classes. We're getting ready to transition in our service here today. But I wonder if we could just all... Um, if we could all just, just close our eyes, I just want to just, just close this here this morning. I know this is teaching. I know this is uh, what, what I'm trying to do is, uh, is to, to break down some, uh, some false uh, teaching, some things maybe that we have uh, been taught before or encountered before and didn't know what to say. Amen. The God that we serve, amen, he is one. And God, he didn't send, he didn't send some part of him, some other son somebody else to go and do the dirty work down in heaven but he sent himself he came down robed himself in flesh to die for our sins to become the lamb for sinners slain he is the one that we've been looking for he was the one that they were looking for all that time amen on that day god confirmed it in the baptism amen let's just let's just lift up our hands all throughout this place I just want to pray lord i thank you for your word, Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you can come and you can begin, God, to confirm your word over and over and over. Lord, I pray against any kind of false doctrine that would try to come and, and to, to weave its way or to sneak its way into to our minds or our thinking, God. Anything that, uh, that we have questions on, Lord, I pray that, that we wouldn't... Uh, uh, that we wouldn't be afraid, God, to study it out, to let your word, God, be revealed to us. Lord, help us, Lord, to, to ask the questions that we have in our mind that, uh, about who you are, Lord, so that we can have an understanding, God, of the way that you are, uh, Lord, want to interact with us, interact with your people. Oh, we are so grateful, so thankful for it. In Jesus' name, In Jesus' name, amen. Man, to that end, I, w- I will say that if there are any questions, if there's ever a time that you want, want to just sit down and just have an understanding, or maybe some questions that you have in your mind about, you know, what does this mean? I'd love to talk. We have others in the church. I'd, I'd love to set you up with a Bible study and, and to talk about the good things of God, the good news of God. Amen. He is so good. He is so good. Praise God. We have... Our children, I see, that are lining up out here, and, and uh, we're getting ready to ha- bring them in. If they want to make their way in, we're going to uh, have our children's choir is going to come. They're going to sing uh, today, and I-, I wonder if you could just worship along with them. They're going to be leading us in a time of worship. So I just invite you here this morning uh, to just join in with them as they lead us today.
your name. Something happens when I call your name. Something happens when I call your name. Something happens when I call.